how can we maintain the rule of law in an emergency? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dwight Newman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dwight Newman. Dwight is a professor of law and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights in Constitutional and International Law at the University of Saskatchewan. He is also a Monk Senior Fellow of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, a Senior Fellow at CARDIS, and an affiliated researcher of the University of Queensland's Law and Religion in the Asia-Pacific Program. Following law school, he clerked for Chief Justice Lamer and Justice LaBelle at the Supreme Court of Canada, worked for human rights NGOs in South Africa and Hong Kong, and for Justice Canada in Ottawa. And he completed his graduate studies at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He has published widely on constitutional law issues, indigenous rights issues, and intersections of these areas with natural resource issues. Along with over 100 articles or book chapters, he has published 15 books, including two books on the duty to consult, and he co-authored Law of the Canadian Constitution, which have been widely cited in judicial decisions. Dwight, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And it's great to have you on, Dwight. So, Dwight, we base each of our episodes around a question, and we go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how can we maintain the rule of law in an emergency? And the way I sort of structure my notes, I think this would be a really great opportunity to go through sort of our most recent Canadian case study on this issue and then discuss some general concepts from there. Um, But before we jump right into all that stuff, just to frame our conversation at a high level, what do you mean when you say the rule of law? Well, that that uh, raises some complexities already, because uh, people can mean different things by that at times. Uh, there is a core meaning that I think everyone would agree is part of it, and maybe it's all of it. Uh, I, I actually go for a narrower meaning of the rule of law, which is essentially that... Um, uh, people would be ruled, uh, as uh, as Mill put it, by by laws, not men. Um, and uh, really, the idea uh, that there isn't an arbitrary exercise of state power, um, but instead that uh, that the the use of state power is guided by law. Uh, rather than just being uh, based on arbitrary whims. Now, uh, or, or I mean, that, that overstates the point, really, because it, I mean, even just for it to be um, guided in some other arbitrary way that isn't necessarily whim-based, but but isn't law-based, it raises uh, the same issues. So the key thing from my perspective is that um, decisions about the use of state power uh, would be guided by uh, law and rules, uh, rather than by um, discretionary decisions so far as possible. And um, there can be a continuum on that, um, and there can be complexities to that. Where I say that that's a, a sort of a narrower conception, there are people who try to put a lot of other values into the, the rule of law as well, um, and they say that the, the rule of law contains all other human rights, uh, ideas along those lines. Some people could try to put various political preferences even in to the concept of the rule of law, um, but at its uh, at its core meaning, what what it's really getting at is that uh, that things are ruled by law rather than by discretionary decisions, and that's a very important protection for people, for individuals in society, um, because it means that they can know 
um, how their action is to be guided. They they know when they might be subject to state coercive power uh, rather than that just uh, arising after the fact and being something they can't foresee in advance. And so they can uh, they, they can guide their action with knowledge of, of how the law works, how the rules of the game work, um, and thus make good decisions and good plans in their individual lives uh, in light of that. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we could also tack on to all that as well, the summary that ultimately, if, if that were to be the case and we do have the rule of law, then in effect, nobody is above the law, if you will. Indeed, I, I, I would see that as an implication, certainly, of the idea that state power is guided by the rule of law. So first of all, um, the law uh, the law is what applies, and the law applies to everyone, um, including to state actors themselves who are thus constrained by the law. Right. And so what I want to do now is actually, you know, typically if, if our listeners are used to other episodes, I might tour some more concepts before getting into some case studies or specific points. But I think that um, a couple of the events that recently happened here in Canada will actually help serve us to parallel both sort of exploring some principles and also a specific case study in and of itself. So I do want to start with the the Canadian case study, as I've said, Dwight. So we recently did have a situation here in downtown Ottawa where a mass protest housed itself on main streets until the government uh, acted to move them out. Um, can you give us an overview of what exactly happened here as far as how the government enacted their special emergency powers and what those powers were to then move these people out. Sure. So, I mean, many listeners will be um, at least somewhat familiar with this incident, uh, the trucker convoy uh, situation that, uh, that was uh, heard of around the world in, in many ways. Um, And people can have all kinds of views about just what took place and why it was happening and so on. Um, but in essence, what the uh, what the Canadian government ended up doing at the end of the day, rather than engaging in uh, normal policing um, that uh, that might have removed this uh, this protest at some stage, uh, and it did go on for a, a lengthy period, and so um, uh, they they could have done so in respect of um, offences that were being ultimately committed by it being there for so long. Um, well. Uh, what the federal government ended up doing is um, making a declaration under the Emergencies Act. And this is a piece of legislation of the Canadian government. Actually, provinces have emergencies legislation as well. Um, but at uh, Canada's national or federal level, um, there's an Emergencies Act, which even allows the federal government to take up some powers of the provinces. Um, and it connects into some constitutional doctrines uh, where in an emergency, the federal government can do that. Um, the Emergencies Act has certain triggers within it um, that uh, that allow for the government to invoke it, um, uh, standards that are to be met in order to invoke the legislation. We'll come back to those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess what I would say is this is all a positive thing, that there is such a piece of legislation uh, because it says that in certain emergency circumstances where there's a very grave threat to the government of Canada um, or where there's uh, some type of crisis that provinces can't deal with and they need the federal government to be involved, there's a rules-based framework for how the federal government may take up uh, exceptional powers in that circumstance. Um, 
Uh, and this was a replacement for a, a, a more draconian piece of legislation that existed before the War Measures Act. It got replaced by this Emergencies Act um, uh, sometime back, back in the, the 1980s. Um, and the Emergencies Act uh, then allows the federal the federal executive specifically. Um, so it's a movement of power from the provinces to the federal government in some circumstances, and it's also a movement of power from the legislative branch to the executive branch to allow for certain decisions to be made more rapidly. They can rule by the issuance of certain types of orders um, that, uh, that flow from their powers under the Emergencies Act. And that's what the federal government ended up doing here, claiming that they had met the circumstances for an emergency and then issuing uh, several different um, emergency orders under the Act. Um, and we can get into more about some of those as well, uh, but I'll just say they included things like um, uh, putting extra restrictions on the ability to gather in certain places, including then Parliament Hill, obviously, um, and the vicinity of it. They included also um, a requirement that uh, that um, that the that people asked by the police to assist in efforts to remove this protest would provide that assistance. Notably, tow truck drivers mm. was a, was an issue here. Right. Um, they included, maybe to the surprise of many, also this surprise uh, order about freezing of bank accounts and so forth that was issued out to financial institutions, um, requiring them to uh, to freeze certain bank accounts of people who might be connected to this activity. And there was concern about how far this might or might not reach, um, and essentially uh, a, a very significant use of a financial order connected in with the package as well. Um, and these are the kinds of steps the federal government took. In doing so, they did end up clearing the protest with um, additional uh, police forces involved than might have been quite as readily in uh, in the context uh, had they just gotten going um, earlier on. But uh uh, the, what actually happened um, in many ways wasn't all that much different than what could have happened weeks earlier mm. had they chosen to do so and to use normal uh, governmental powers in the conduct in the context of uh, activity that had started to become illegal um, at the site of the the truckers' protest uh, or convoy protest, however we term it. Mm -hmm. No, excellent. Thank you for that overview. I think that was that ran through a couple of the notes I definitely want to hit as we provide that overview. So and, and you're absolutely correct, as you're saying, we'll get into a little more details about the criteria as whether or not this was a legitimate time to use it and so on and so forth in a minute. But be, before we leave sort of the overview point, um, you know, some people said and I guess and I want to make sure I get our framework for discussion very correct here before we move ahead. So some people I, I, online and commentators and so on and so forth say that uh and again we'll get to if it was a good time to use these powers or not in a second but they say when these types of powers are enacted that in and of itself means we've left rule of law terry and into authoritarian powers do you think just by definition that's correct or do you still see these type of emergency powers as happening within a framework of legislation so technically still the rule of law just to get that accurate there so I, I would tend to say that this happens within the framework of legislation. Um, so there's a preservation of the rule of law by the fact there is a legislative framework to guide this. But if we thought of the law as a the rule of law concept as on a continuum, there is a sense in which 
by the very action of going in this direction, there is a movement away from the normal application of law. And so something to be concerned about in the context of any move um, to use the Emergencies Act. Uh, I think this is why the criteria are so important and the, the idea that strict legal criteria would be met that were the agreed criteria to go into this framework. Because if, if you're following those, um, then there's agreement that in those particular circumstances, uh, there's there's a reason to go in this direction. If you if you don't follow those, then um, by definition you you have stepped outside the the rule of law in uh, in some respects. Um, uh, when you follow the criteria and have a reason uh, in law for the Emergencies Act to apply, um, I would say in some respects um, the use of the Emergencies Act. Um, could also be to help to protect liberty um, in that circumstance. Mm. And just to give an example, um, something that would clearly trigger the use of the Emergencies Act would be um, if the country were invaded by a foreign power. Um, well, it, it wouldn't make sense to say that the government just keeps following all the normal laws uh, that apply in peacetime and can't change anything. Um, the Emergencies Act would allow for them to change some things in order to preserve the liberty of the citizens uh, in response to this invasion on a temporary basis, all of these sorts of things. But the Emergencies Act uh, does provide the legal framework for a sort of temporary departure from uh, the rule of law in its uh, in its ideal senses um, to allow for uh, a bit of a, a second best rule of law uh, scenario. Um, but the fact that there is an Emergencies Act and that Canada um, guides an emergency under that kind of legislation, that's, that's a good thing in terms of the rule of law, as opposed to if the government just arbitrarily took up powers um, or did this in some way without the guidance of legislation. Mm. So, so in other words, from your perspective, if I'm understanding correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's fair indeed to say that these powers and this um, these types of emergency powers ended up of themselves, if they're triggered or activated, aren't necessarily a case where we're going beyond the rule of law. But it's 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 in effect how they're used, how and why they've been triggered, and so on and so forth that you would judge whether or not they're legitimate. Basically, indeed, yes. Okay. If they've been properly triggered, uh, then there is a legislative framework to guide this. Um, obviously, one isn't in an ideal rule of law scenario, depending on what's done there. But all of the scrutiny mechanisms that are there. Um, uh, under the legislation are, again, to provide ongoing guidance to keep things as close to the rule of law as possible, in a sense. Right. And I suppose, it, just to emphasize a little further, it would not be just about how we got to these powers as well, but how the government acts with those powers as well. Any any and all of the moves might be within or without the scope. I suppose you would say if, if they're without the scope, then they're definitely exceeding their authority, and, and that would be illegitimate. Indeed. If they were beyond the scope, they would be um, illegitimate on that basis. Um, I think we can offer a, a critique, even if they're within the scope, mm. if the if the powers were more than what were needed, um, or uh, or uh, inappropriate kinds of uses of power relative to what was needed. Um, it might not um, be illegal under the Emergencies Act because it has to leave room for government to make choices in those circumstances. Um, but that's partly why we have the the. the 
um, the mechanisms that are meant to provide scrutiny after the fact in order to say whether the particular powers used were appropriate and legitimate, uh, the particular choices made were appropriate and legitimate, and that would that would have implications for the rule of law as well. But of course, if they went beyond the bounds of it um, uh, or weren't properly within the scope of it, there's a rule of law problem with that to start with. Right. And I think with all that great context setting, I'm going to shift gears here. And as I was saying before, I want to get into your thoughts and ideas on whether just getting to this point where these emergency powers were enacted was legitimate or not. And of course, then we could discuss what was done and whether it was legitimate. But even just getting the powers themselves, was that legitimate is is the question. And I'll note that in a letter from the Advocates for the Rule of Law group, you and your co-signers note that for declaring a public emergency to be legitimate, Three major factors ultimately need to be in play, that there's a legitimate threat, that it is indeed a national emergency, and that it can't be handled under existing laws. So I actually kind of want to go through all these because this could get very technical or very high level, but I want to provide a sufficient level of technicality just so we can really get into this. So on the first factor, a, a legitimate threat, like how, how would we define that legitimate threat where you'd say, okay, check mark, there is a legitimate threat, we've passed that criteria. Um, sure. So this can get very technical. I, I don't know if we should get too far into details of Canadian legislation, given that there could be listeners from elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but I guess I, I would say uh, that in the particular situation that arose, um, uh, Canada was claiming that there was a public order emergency, which is a particular type of emergency under the uh, under the Emergencies Act. Um, and the particular kind of legitimate threat needs to be one that's a threat to the security of Canada, um, which has a technical meaning to it. And there are particular kinds of threats to the security of Canada that uh, that um, uh, that meet that definition. And it needs to be serious enough to be a national emergency. Well, the kind of threat to the emergency of Canada is actually... Um, defined under the Emergencies Act as being the same kind of threat to the security of Canada um, uh, that would be identified under a section of Canada's uh, Canadian uh, Security Intelligence Service Act legislation, CSIS legislation, which is basically the, the Canadian version of the CIA, um, a much uh, much smaller version and uh, um, different version. Uh, but, uh, but that's where the definition comes from that's referenced in the Emergencies Act. And essentially, the claim there ends up needing to be something uh, along the lines of terrorism, um, uh, or there are a few other possibilities there, but on the the, the lines that, uh, that the Canadian government was claiming, there needed to be something a bit like terrorism um, in terms of uses of uh, of serious violence rising to that kind of level of terrorism um, uh, for achieving a political objective. And um, uh, my co-signers and I, in looking at this, we didn't see the government put forward um, evidence of that sort. Um, we didn't exclude the possibility that, that that evidence might exist and still not have been revealed at the point in time when we wrote this during the, the evolving emergency. But we still haven't seen that at this point. And the, the government of Canada is claiming uh, at this point um, 
uh, cabinet confidentiality with respect to some of the uh, the information that could potentially support that. Um, so the type of threat needs uh, for a public order emergency to be one that meets the definitions in the uh, CSIS Act. And uh, there are a few possibilities there, uh, but the, uh, the one that potentially applied here uh, was acts of very serious violence um, akin to terrorism um, uh, for a similar kind of purposes, terrorism, essentially. And uh, that's putting a few definitions together and so on. And so I'm um, not setting out the, uh, the words of the statute when I say it that way, but that's what the combination of the statutory sections implies um, and would be the kind of threat at issue. Mm-hmm. And and just a couple, uh, a bit of our description and facts with a bit of your analysis then, because you did toe into it, so I'll push a little further into it. So as far as that legitimate threat type of conversation, as far as you're concerned, you're saying you don't think that that criteria would have been satisfied from what you can tell from the, the situation that we just went through. From what we've seen so far in terms of what was publicly reported and in terms of the evidence the government has produced, which has mainly just been what was publicly reported, I don't see the evidence that that arm was met, um, unless there's further evidence of something else um, that we've not yet seen. Um, and if there is, I think that the government should be making that at some point uh, available, um, ideally to the public, um, or if it can't be made publicly available, then to some type of process of uh, independent review um, that is looking at that information uh, in order to assess it um, in, a, in a clearly independent fashion um, in order to uh, provide confirmation that the government actually has evidence that, that rises to that level. Because right now, I, I don't see it. Um, the government issued an explanatory... I keep saying the government. I should just say the executive, really. Right. Um, they issued a, a, an explanatory memorandum, which they're required to do at the time of tabling the emergency declaration into parliament. And until we had that, uh, I thought, well, maybe maybe they've got something that's going to show that. And then there was this 16-page uh, memorandum, as I recall, uh, around that length, and it just didn't have that uh, that evidence in it, and so it uh, it's it's not a criterion that's been met based on what we've seen to this point in time. Right. So for those keeping track of the case study listing that we're going through, uh, that get, that criteria gets a big X as as and not passed from Dwight in this case. <laughs> uh, I did mention that there's other sort of discussions at play here too, uh, in terms of whether this was legitimate or not as far as powers. The the idea of a national emergency and that it. it you know, and that the government is also would claim it can't be handled under existing laws. Can you tour through exactly what that means? Because some people might think flippantly, well, if the government wants to do something, they might always want to claim they can't do something under existing laws. Right. And uh, I mean, one answer would be if, if you're finding that routinely, maybe you should improve the existing laws. Um, but uh, uh, I, I'm not sure that that's the issue here so much. Um, in terms of the, the requirement for a national emergency, that either needs to be something that's, uh, that's a serious danger to lives and safety of Canadians and that exceeds the ability of, province, of a province to deal with it. Um, or that threatens the sovereignty and security and territorial integrity of Canada. Either of those meets it. Um, but uh, both of those, again, are high thresholds. Um, and I, I'm not sure that uh, that we just uh, that we got much explanation on this from uh, from the executive in this situation. 
Um, uh, the suggestion that this exceeded the capacity of a province to deal with it, um, the provinces themselves uh, could have taken uh, additional uh, steps in terms of their policing. Um, uh, they uh, they could have resorted to emergency legislation of their own, um, and uh, we didn't see the, we didn't see all of what the provinces could have done. Um, uh, to say that there was a threat to the overall sovereignty of Canada, or the national security of Canada as a whole, um, uh, well, specifically to the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Canada, that's a pretty high threshold again. Um, and again, it depends if there was any further evidence, but in the absence of seeing that, we're, we're not really... Uh, uh, it's challenging to say that what was happening in Ottawa met that standard. No doubt it was a serious situation. And in the letter, we say uh, they probably should have dealt with this before, um, but uh, uh, before it reached the point where they were invoking the Emergencies Act, um, uh, there was a point in time at which there was a uh, an initial protest, and uh, protest is a... Uh, um, a legal thing to do in Canada, obviously. Um, as it went on, um, there was a, a point at which uh, there could have been steps um, prior to uh, to making these uh, these larger claims. One of the things the Prime Minister said um, when uh, when he uh, revoked the uh, the emergencies order um, was he said that this had been necessary in order to clear out um, the uh, the border blockade. Uh, at the uh, the Windsor Detroit border, um, and one of the strange things about that claim for putting in place the Emergencies Act order uh, is that that uh, that um, blockade had actually been cleared the day before the Emergencies order was put in place, hmm. and so it's very strange to say that you needed to put in place the emergencies uh, order on the uh, uh, the 14th of February in order to clear a blockade that had been cleared on the 13th of February. And so I'll just leave that point at that. Um, the other uh, the other point, as, uh, as you've referenced, is that it's also necessary to show uh, that the situation can't be effectively dealt with under existing laws. This overlaps um, with the issue around whether the provinces could have dealt with it um, and uh, again, it's a high threshold, um, something challenging to claim. Um, uh, one of the things that the uh, federal executive, well, two of the things the federal executive has claimed around this is um, they couldn't get tow truck drivers unless they used this emergencies legislation. Um, ultimately, the tow truck drivers who were involved uh, went with their uh, uh, their business names covered up. And uh, um, I just wonder if they'd uh, bought them some uh, um, covers for their uh, uh, their business names earlier on, if they might not have been able to uh, uh, get tow truck drivers involved earlier. Um, uh, the other thing is the federal government uh, or the federal executive claimed that they needed these financial powers that they ended up using right. in order to stop the flow of money to the convoy. That did um, involve some steps that went beyond existing laws, but whether that was necessary in order to clear the problem um, is a different matter. And again, unless there's some other evidence of what was going on where the financial aspect um, uh, was absolutely necessary to, to block in that way uh, in order to clear some protesters from uh, or some people who'd set up even an occupation of the Parliament Hill vicinity, 
Um, uh, you could do that whether or not they had money coming into their bank accounts, unless there's evidence of something else going on, again, of a sort that the government needs to release in some way to allow for uh, scrutiny after the fact now, whether to the public as a whole, ideally, or at minimum, to some genuinely independent process that could review this. Mm-hmm. So, so to sum up, you definitely don't, don't think that these emergency powers were justified based on the criteria we talked about and the situation that uh, was in, in downtown Ottawa. But I just want to reemphasize one, one more thing here before we depart to another point, which is that so because a lot of people have that support the government in this case have used this as a main counter argument. So I do want to drill a little first. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you, you did uh, say and you do seem to think that indeed this could have reasonably and comfortably been dealt with within existing laws and existing levels of authority without even need to go this route. That's right. Um, and I guess, uh, I mean, in saying all these things, I, I'm not here saying that uh, that we shouldn't care about the people of Ottawa or that, that this was something that they had to tolerate forever, uh, that there would be uh, this kind of occupation there and the, the things that went with that. Um, but I, I am saying that even in an, uh, an emergency type situation, things need to be guided by law. Um, and it's very difficult to say that the Emergencies Act was properly invoked here. Um, and one of the reasons um, for saying that is because they could have dealt with this under existing law. If one notes the charges against the uh, the various people charged subsequently to uh, uh, the clearing of the protest, um, those charges have been under existing laws. They haven't been charges under the offences created under the uh, the Emergencies Act. They've been charges under laws that existed before. And that's just yet more evidence that had they applied those existing laws, um, they could uh, have moved to enforce those existing laws and uh, and carried out the, the clearing of the, uh, the protest on that basis. So that would be another way of thinking about this. And I think uh, a way that helps to illustrate the point further. Mm-hmm. And actually, we're right about that time, and it's, I think it's good timing because we're kind of coming to the end of the bulk of that case study, if you will, there. So we're going to take a quick break right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dwight Newman today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask@liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Randy T. Simmons, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dwight Newman today. So, Dwight, I think the first half was great. We talked about sort of a a major Canadian case study as far as emergency powers and the rule of law is concerned in our first bit of our conversation there. Um, And I want to kind of go back to one point here. And and you and your co-signers did mention this in in the letter. And this will apply now to sort of, of course, the case study we talked about, but also just as a general point. In the letter, you folks do point out that, you know, this, this, this use of emergency powers uh, in this situation could set a bad precedent for how they may be used in the future. Generally speaking, whether it's this case or just a general case, if this kind of situation um, allows is found by whatever tribunal or however else to be a legitimate use of these powers, you, do you think that is indeed a very dangerous precedent? 
that that's one of the things certainly to be concerned about in a situation like this is if if things didn't rise to as high a threshold as they ought to have, um, it does set a precedent that uh, that whether this current government or whether a future government acting in some analogous kind of situation uh, that's no more serious uh, could end up uh, using the Emergencies Act again. Um, and it could even become uh, routinized, would be uh, the worst case scenario. Uh, but uh, uh, it, do- it doesn't say that the government has to use the Emergencies Act again in every future protest situation. Uh, but if, if this stands as having been a uh, legitimate use of it, um, there's certainly the possibility that, uh, that governments in future could say, well, that was an emergency and the Emergencies Act was invoked. We're going to do it again in, the, in this upcoming situation. And so even some of those who've defended the government on this situation ought to be quite wary of that. Um, um, there are people that didn't like the, the trucker convoy, but who do like um, some other protest movement, whether um, Black Lives Matter or uh, um, environmental protests or whatever else, where they might not want a future government to take the, the same steps. Um, but everyone who cares about the uh, the liberty of, uh, of individual people and the ability of people to, to gather and protest um, should be uh, should be concerned by the precedent that's set, and so it's interesting to see uh, the 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 range of groups that are now posing legal challenges uh, against the Emergencies Act. Those commenced while it was in place, um, but I think those are important cases to see go forward um, for the courts to rule upon. Um, uh, the criteria, because it's, they've never been interpreted in courts before. Um, this was the first invocation of the Emergencies Act um, since it had replaced the War Measures Act. Um, and uh, this use provides guidance for the future, um, uh, whether in an informal precedent or ideally with uh, some judicial language about uh, what was or wasn't appropriate and some judicial interpretation of uh, of what these criteria mean for the future. Mm. So, so as the as this goes through the court system, we're going to have a lot of precedents and decisions and things like that to look back on generated from this. Basically, it's going to create a whole set of uh, legalese around this. I guess that lawyers can and everyone else can then refer to and and see if this does number one meet the test, but also number two, what other things are said in these opinions. I suppose. That would be the hope. I mean, I, I, I don't hope for legalese for the sake of legalese, um, but because uh, uh, legal guidance that uh, that properly interprets a statute um, helps to enhance the rule of law by by making it more understandable um, in some ways. I mean, it, it may help to elaborate upon the meaning of it. As you say, it may be in legalese that isn't always totally accessible to everybody. Um, ideally, courts make things as accessible as they can, but things do get technical, understandably, uh, and it will provide further guidance if the courts do indeed rule upon this, which I hope they will. Um, the government is uh, in part claiming that the the, the court shouldn't rule upon it because uh, the matter is already over. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a great way of uh, uh, evading scrutiny. <laughs> that's a very interesting were, uh, claim that, because, that doesn't work for anyone else, it seems. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but I mean, if you said that, well, the government can claim the emergency for a few days. They didn't even get to the, the vote by the Senate. Um, so there's supposed to be scrutiny in the House of Commons where they whip the vote um, in the Senate where they weren't going to be able to whip the vote. And um, they might have had an interesting vote, but they uh, they called off the emergency order before that. 
Um, well, there's also meant to be a, an inquiry, and uh, they've set that in motion. I'm not sure if they've framed the terms of that as broadly as they ought to have. Um, and then there's the uh, the court uh, hearings that will proceed, but the government has tried to to block those in some ways, saying the matter is moot, meaning that it's uh, that it's already over, um, and claiming this uh, cabinet confidentiality with respect to some of the the key documents that would go to it. Um, all of these undermine the kinds of scrutiny that there uh, that there was meant to be under the Act. Um, but this is uh, this is something that will provide guidance in one way or another for the future. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's very interesting because on the other hand, and perhaps I'm confusing two two things here. Maybe I'm I'm out of date because uh, it was my understanding. So, if on the one hand the uh, the government is basically saying that they don't want this going through the court system and so on and so forth, uh, they they also seem to be currently in the process of making a big deal about this public inquiry that they want to start into the whole thing, and they're positioning it as sort of a, a genuine type of self scrutiny is is either I'm completely out of date on the information or, or are they trying to put more stake in sort of more of a public inquiry thing and keep this away from the court system? Um, so they're trying to keep it away from the court system. Um, they've called an inquiry that they're making a big deal about because they were required to under the Emergencies Act. They were right. required by a certain date to call an inquiry. Um, uh, how that inquiry works I guess, uh, remains to be seen. Um, I think that they've cast the terms of the inquiry more narrowly than perhaps they're even required to under the Act. Um, uh, Hopefully the inquiry um, uh, examines things thoroughly, uh, but that remains to be seen. And uh, my understanding is so far they've not agreed to make all the documents available to the inquiry either, although uh, they have made some comments that uh, that it'll have the documents it needs. So we can hope it does. Um, and this inquiry needs to report back within a year. Uh, but uh, uh, the inquiry is a different process than a court ruling. Um, the inquiry gives some comment after the fact. It's significant. It's a significant means of scrutiny if done well. Um, but uh, the court processes that uh, had been launched could provide an actual judicial declaration, maybe even a remedy of some kind. I'm not sure that that anything is being sought other than a declaration. Uh, but that's uh, ultimately uh, more significant than a, than an inquiry determination because it would be uh, an actual uh, court determination. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the commissioner for the inquiry is a uh, is a judge. Uh, but isn't acting quite in the same way as a judge, um, has some of the powers of a judge in carrying out an inquiry, um, but doesn't make a court decision at the end of the day, even though on another uh, in another year he would be uh, working for the court and rendering court judgments. Well, here it would be an inquiry um, determination and carried out a little bit differently. So it gets... Uh, and we get into some complicated distinctions here. Um, the, it's good that there be different kinds of scrutiny on this. Right. And that's actually going to be my next question. So, of course, sort of the main title or theme for our episode was rule of law during an emergency. But we've talked a lot about post-emergency, if you will, now. But but as a, as a general point, whether it's this case or, or anything else, uh, do, do you think that this sort of, um, you know, post-mortem, like after the fact type of uh, levels of scrutiny, is, is that a key in your mind to maintaining sort of the semblance of a rule of law as well, even after an emergency? I think that is important um, because that kind of scrutiny can help to provide uh, guidance for the future in terms of uh, whether uh, an emergency was legitimately declared or not. Um, it uh, it might uh, uh, enable a judge to uh, 
to engage more rapidly with the future declaration um, if it uh, looked to be in a similar circumstance and weren't legitimate, or it just allows the, the public to be uh, responsive more quickly to something that they uh, that they didn't necessarily uh, foresee. I guess, um, although that's not acting in respect of the immediate steps taken, it is important in terms of how those affect what happens in the uh, in the future, and uh, um, even just that there would be the kinds of scrutiny that there needed to be is important in order that an emergency not be prolonged. And not all of those kicked into place in the way that they would have. But one of the things in the Emergencies Act is also, had it been confirmed by the Senate, then there would have been a parliamentary review committee that would have sat on an ongoing basis in order to continue to comment on the emergency, in essence, while it was still in place. Um, there would have been some uh, uh, stages at which there would have been uh, ongoing requirements for the legislative uh, process to confirm this. Um, so there, there are things while an emergency is underway that it requires ongoing scrutiny. So it can't just stay in place permanently um, or however long is convenient for those who suggested that there's an emergency. Um, and... Uh, the scrutiny after the fact is really important in terms of what precedent is set for the future and uh, whether uh, the commentary says this is acceptable or whether that commentary says we can't change history but this wasn't acceptable for these reasons and here's how to improve things for the future. That's that's important to have as part of the process. Right. And back to sort of a point that we quickly uh, established in the first part of our conversation too, where you said uh, in your view, it, it you know, the government um, having certain powers in and of itself does not necessarily mean uh, that they're going beyond the rule of law, especially if it's all done with the proper due process and so on and so forth. So is we talked about sort of after the fact type of scrutiny. So um, back to this point, then it would seem that then as well, you, one of the keys to actually maintaining a rule of law during an emergency then is is actually having these mechanisms of scrutiny in place as the emergency continues and as the government is acting uh, with their powers. Indeed. I mean, these kinds of mechanisms can, uh, can help to lessen the harm um, to the rule of law and the harm to, uh, to individual liberty that would otherwise arise by uh, providing the scrutiny of, uh, of the claimed emergency during it. Um, uh, and by providing the the review after the fact, and uh, I mean these are important in uh, in the context of um, maintaining the rule of law in an emergency and avoiding an emergency being a, a future threat to to the rule of law. And uh, I mean thinking of this in broader terms. Uh, um, Hayek uh, ended up uh, writing about emergencies in the course of his writing on legislation. And one of the things he said is that emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have been eroded. Indeed. Um, and uh, I think this is a, a very important point to highlight. And there can be legitimate emergencies, but there can be emergencies that are pretexts. And it's really important to discern the difference and have the legal mechanisms in place that, uh, that give us the best 
chance at discerning the difference between those at the time it's unfolding, but also um, even if that can't be done in a particular instance at the time that it's unfolding, that there can be good scrutiny after the fact as to uh, as to what was done um, and if it was legitimate or was a, was a pretext in some way. And one of the other things that Hayek warned about is the danger uh, that emergencies can get prolonged um, uh, and sometimes there's a power by those who, uh, who who declared that there's an emergency just to keep prolonging it and sort of making sure that there's an emergency in place. And that's, that's a very dangerous situation if that's one in which the rule of law is weakened and individual liberty is weakened. The idea that, there, uh, that, uh, that it could just be prolonged in some way um, in order that so that those uh, departures from the normal legal protections um, and the normal protections for individual liberty would be weakened. Um, that That's one of the, the concerns to highlight and that some of these kinds of things can be responsive um, uh, to it. And uh, I mean, I actually in some ways think um, uh, there, uh, there are good things about there having been an emergency order rather than government just acting arbitrarily because it puts it into the framework of this legislation. Hmm. Um, And uh, carrying out emergency steps under other legislation that doesn't have the same kind of scrutiny um, has some some challenging aspects because it it doesn't allow that same kind of uh, scrutiny and so on as well. And um, one of the the contexts where... um, some people thought the Emergencies Act would be invoked, but it never was. Uh, was in the context of developing COVID policies throughout the uh, the COVID pandemic. The right. federal government never used the Emergencies Act, and in part that was because they took the view that the provinces were all acting. And provinces generally acted under their public health legislation. Um, it doesn't provide for all of the same kinds of uh, scrutiny. Um, and uh, there clearly was an emergency in some form. Um, but it's always important to have a careful study of um, uh, the uh, the nature of emergency steps and the way in which they're applied um, and the consequences of those. And so in various ways, people are obviously trying to uh, to raise questions about particular things that were done in the context of COVID as well. Um, but the fact that the Emergency Act wasn't used <laughs> means that there, there isn't the same automatic inquiry or the, the same process that takes place with it, even though obviously there were a lot of steps um, that uh, departed from uh, the standard rule of law um, and that uh, that uh, limited individual liberty uh, in the context of pandemic policies. Um, and uh, I, I'm pretty sympathetic. I'll, I'll confess to, uh, to a lot of the health-motivated reasons there. I know there are going to be listeners that have a variety of different viewpoints, um, but I do think there should be scrutiny um, while these things are happening and that there should be scrutiny um, after the fact in uh, uh, sort of a, a similar spirit to what happens uh, with something like the Emergencies Act. You, you brought up an interesting point there uh, with an implication about the, uh, you know, if an emergency powers or some sort of legal framework is kicked into gear it's it's, it's sort of a ultimately on net a good thing that it can then at least what the government does i should say can then be at least scrutinized through that framework and that's very interesting because there are those who would say that um for example that you know there's certain powers that the government should not be able to enact for instance like you know the bar should so be so incredibly high that it, it virtually is, is never going to be used but as far as like the balancing act of keeping the government accountable it sounds to me like you're saying that you know it, 
sometimes in sort of a, a weird, maybe potentially counterintuitive way, if the government does in fact use certain powers, it might actually be a good thing because it kicks a legal framework into gear for that scrutiny. Indeed. Well, it's just a claim that uh, um, governments acting within a legal framework that provides for ultimate scrutiny is better than governments doing the same things with no legal framework at all in, in a certain way. I mean, it, it might be better depending on the circumstance that they not take certain steps. Um, right. But if they're going to take those steps, it's better that there be a legal framework that provides both immediate, ongoing, and uh, after-the-fact scrutiny uh, than that there be no legal framework for uh, for what's happening uh, and thus uh, thus no inquiry into what takes place. Um, so uh, it's, it's just... If, if government's going to exceed the normal law, better that they do that in accordance with some legal framework rather than no legal framework. Right. Do you think there's a trade-off between the rule of law and due process on the one hand, or at least, you know, trying to adhere to those principles and expediency and action on the other? You know, it seems to me that the state, of course, for its own vested interest, um, but also, of course, even the mass media, they, there's always a climate of sort of crisis on almost every issue created these days, regardless of whether we're in crisis or not. But even putting that aside, it seems that politicians are often incentivized, uh, whether it's actually an emergency or even not, just to just to do something. Can't they just get their hands on some levers and, and, and do something? something so i guess in other words I'm, I'm i guess what i'm trying to say is that is there sort of actually a balance people need to keep in mind and if people do want to maintain the rule of law and actually respect that as a principle do, frankly and flippantly do they just have to get used to the fact that sometimes politicians shouldn't just go off and do something that there is process and things take time sometimes sure i mean there are a few different responses that uh, that one could offer to this i mean one thing i'll say is that Yes, we see some situations where um, uh, governments are uh, making claims of crisis on this or crisis on that, or uh, the media are making commentary as to a particular thing being a crisis. Um, uh, and uh, the use of some of that language is not always uh, uh, actually well suited to the problems, uh, the problems at issue, because sometimes the term crisis is used just to refer to a particularly severe but ongoing problem. Um, and there, I saw an interesting piece lately that was uh, talking about the use of the word crisis in relation to ongoing issues with respect to the justice system, say. And just to draw attention to those, some people are using the term crisis uh, with the hope that then the government would act quickly and immediately. But it, it may actually lead to the wrong kinds of action if you intervene as if there were a crisis when actually you have larger ongoing issues that are important um, but aren't a crisis. The second thing I'll say is sometimes, yes, it leads to governments rushing into decisions and maybe whether there is a crisis or not. Um, uh, but if even if there is a crisis of some sort, um, uh, the rule of law continues to be important and has in, has endured as a principle for thousands of years because it protects things that are really important, even in the context of crises. And we've had crises before, um, and uh, it doesn't mean that one should always just depart from the law and act as fast as possible, um, even in unwise ways. Now, sometimes there is a tension. There may be things that need to be done quickly, um, uh, but there, there, there does need to be acceptance that uh, that there are some trade-offs in that, and it's maybe not always ideal to go in that route. The third thing I'd say, though, is just... Um, 
There are situations where governments are acting too quickly. There are also an awful lot of situations where governments aren't acting enough. Um, and this is a, a sort of a paradoxical feature of our era almost. Um, one of the critiques that I've made of uh, Canadian governments uh, um, is that uh, they they often are leaving decisions to the courts on major issues, for example, hmm. um, and legislatures aren't acting on major policy issues, and then they just let the court decide, and then they pretend that the court forced them into some course of action uh, when it's sort of the course of action they might have wanted to pursue, but they, they didn't have the courage to just get busy and do it, or the... Uh, um, the coordination to get busy and do it, um, or some issues just get unaddressed and uh, um, the court doesn't do anything, or it's left to an administrative decision maker. And so parliament should actually be doing things, but it just happens through a government department in some way where parliament isn't offering the scrutiny to it that it should. And I say parliament because we're talking Canada. The same is true of, of other countries as well. Um, Congress in the US should be scrutinizing more things than it does. And uh, obviously, there are uh, challenges of how large an agenda can they deal with. Um, but too much is left to administrative decision makers who operate as sort of this fourth arm of government that's uh, that's sometimes outside of control and uh, um, doing its own thing uh, that isn't necessarily always uh, the policy that, uh, that would be chosen um, in a democratic process. Um, uh, so there are a lot of different aspects to this. Um, I, uh, I agree with the, the initial question that uh, uh, there are times where governments are acting uh, too quickly on uh, uh, claims of crisis, uh, but there are also times where governments aren't acting where they where they should be, and uh, both are problems. And one more question before we sort of head to our, our formal wrap up, if you will. Um, you know, a lot of people, and and I disagree with what I'm about to say. So, but so I just want to make very clearly say that I don't agree with that. A lot of people might say this type of conversation, for example, is like is too high level. The layman just wants something to happen. You know, like political action, as I was kind of alluding to before. What do you think people uh, like yourself, like like us, for example, um, that that really do think these principles are just very important and it should be th- thought about universally? can do to sort of you know spread the word and encourage people to think on this differently without sort of you know giving off the presentation that uh you know you have to you know get into technicalities or be heavily legally uh and you know have a have a huge legal mind for example to get into this stuff what are the kinds of things you think in other words we should get people thinking on from a high level perspective to take these issues seriously oh well that's that's a great question i mean um People listening to podcasts like this is probably a first step, um, just uh, or part of a first step. I mean, people getting um, as educated as they can on on uh, the the kinds of principles that we're concerned about, um, and uh, then uh, being ready to talk about those to talk about those with uh, with um, uh, with democratic representatives, but also just with fellow citizens. I think those are all important steps. Um, people that uh, that uh, learn about liberty and learn about its significance and carry on that tradition in all kinds of different contexts, that's, uh, that's something important that they're doing. And they may not realize it every time that they do it, but even just their conversations with friends and neighbors and family um, about the importance of matters like liberty and the rule of law, uh, those are important because they contribute to the overall societal culture. Mm-hmm. And um, people might 
might not realize that they're having an impact with each given conversation, but they're contributing to uh, a larger societal culture on these issues that does matter. And obviously, those that want to take that further uh, can take steps to actually engage with uh, elected representatives or to um, comment in the in the media in some way, whether just through letters to the editor or uh, calling into a radio show. Um, uh, all of these different things. Um, uh, without necessarily being someone whose whole career is into into uh, uh, into law or into uh, 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 advocacy of liberty as a career, uh, people can take a lot of steps um, in their uh, their life as citizens. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that immensely, and I also like your point about just just talking to people about this stuff. I think we hear so much today about whether it's this issue or any other about you know, for example, the topics you should avoid at the dinner table, metaphorically speaking. And I think as long as people are respectful, you know. It's good even if people don't agree that they should be talking about this stuff because, as you said, people might not feel that way. But I, I agree with you that, that even that small bit is contributing to not only your own education but also other people as well. Getting people thinking on this stuff is very important, I think. Sure. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm not saying have fights over the uh, the, the Christmas dinner table or Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, but respectful conversations uh, uh, in various forms uh, can make a can make a difference. Yeah, yeah, we're sure. not encouraging people to go out and try and ruin Thanksgiving, but respectful conversation right. is a good That's idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Dwight, our time is pretty much wound down here. I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up. Ultimately, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest has the last word to put a finer point on our exploration of the question and their thoughts as as we've gone through. So let me officially ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how we can maintain the rule of law in an emergency? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave here listening to this with only one or two or just a few takeaways from everything, if anything, what would those ultimately be? Well, one thing I'd say, take away that the rule of law matters, and the rule of law matters to liberty, and the rule of law matters to the ability of people to uh, plan their lives and carry on activity in their lives, knowing what will or will will not attract um, interference from government. And so that's important. Um, uh, in the context of an emergency, uh, there may be a need to move away from Uh, the ideal form of the rule of law, but we can um, maintain uh, the best we can come uh, that's next to that by having a legislative framework that we rigorously enforce um, for when there can be uh, emergency steps um, that maintain scrutiny over those steps during the emergency um, and that uh, provides for review after the fact. I think those would be the the takeaways that uh, the rule of law matters, the rule of law matters even in an emergency, and that there are uh, particular steps we can take to try to maintain the rule of law even in an emergency. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Dwight Newman, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.